If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn in them to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8, we return once more to our study of this great book of history. Uh, We've been in this book a little while, and uh, some of you may be feeling that. I hope not too much. Uh, but the end is in sight for Nehemiah. We, we have a few more weeks and uh, we'll be through this book. But as we jump back into our story this morning, let me just remind you briefly, very briefly, of, of where we are, knowing how forgetful uh, you are and I am. Not just you. But we have been a couple weeks away. Remember, God's people have returned from the land of exile to the land of promise. It is the fulfillment of God's promises to His people. God is showing Himself faithful in returning His people to this land. The temple has been rebuilt and worship is is being restored and now the walls have been rebuilt and safety is being achieved for the people of God. But you'll remember there is a people, too, that need to be restored. There is a way of life that needs to be rediscovered. You see, for many, the years in exile had taken its toll. They had long breathed the air of the Babylonian culture, and they had forgot, simply, what it meant to be God's people. And so in this act of really extraordinary grace, God spoke to them. God spoke to them and He put in the people's hearts a hunger for His Word. And so you'll remember in two weeks ago when we looked at the first half of Nehemiah chapter 8, they cried out for this Word. And they heard it. They heard the Word for the first time in generations and they listened. They listened attently. They listened reverently. They listened for hours upon hours and remember, they were literally overcome by the Word. And that was where we left off in Nehemiah chapter 8. If you're looking at the insert, I printed the whole bulletin or the whole chapter in the bulletin so that you could kind of see what had gone before and, and, and be reminded. But now, as we come to Nehemiah 8, verse 13, we are on the next day. This is the morning after all that weeping and all that listening has occurred. And so, that's where we find ourselves. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. Listen as I read. This is God's Word. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booze during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booze as it is written. 
And so the people went out, and they brought them, and they made booze for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booze and lived in the booze. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, by having you think of two, two very common words and have you think in your mind what comes to your mind when you think of these words. First, the word authority. And second, the word freedom. Authority and freedom. Which one of those words has more appeal, at least on the surface? Which one of those words has more appeal to you? Authority or freedom? Or if if you were to ask your neighbor, or we were to do one of those Jay Leno street interviews, which word appeals to you more? What do you think people would say? Authority or freedom? Freedom. I think you're right. J.I. Packer wrote a wonderful book. J.I. Packer is an author, wrote a classic book called Knowing God that if you haven't read, I commend it to you. Great book. But J.I. Packer is a, is a great theologian and he wrote a wonderful book called Truth and Power where he makes the case that the word authority in our day carries with it these ugly synonyms. Restraint. Command. Control. Dominance. Particularly in the Western world, the word authority is kind of a dirty word. Even if you just think about the news and Syria, you think, man, authority. Meanwhile, freedom, that word to a lot of people in our culture, brings to mind words like patriotism. And release and, and liberation, right? Freedom for us is William Wallace in Braveheart, while authority is Saddam Hussein, Fidel Castro. See, unfortunately, the reason for this is because we simply, in our day and age, we think wrongly about freedom. True. Freedom is not the removal of all restraints. It's not the removal of all authority, for if that were the case, we then become simply slaves to ourselves and our own passions and we destroy ourselves inwardly. No, true freedom is found in submitting ourselves to the authority that we were created for. The authority that we were designed for And it's that submission, it's that submission to that authority that brings about joy, even. All the opposite of these oppressive, ugly synonyms. No, 
that kind of submission to that kind of authority truly brings joy. And that's one of the underlying truths that we find in Nehemiah chapter 8, in the second half of this chapter. Building on the truths that we looked at two weeks ago from the first half of Nehemiah 8, I want to give you two more today to think about. Two more to meditate on. And the first one is this. God has spoken. We must respond. God has spoken. We must respond. If you remember in thinking about what has come before, we first said God has spoken. We must listen. Right? And this had to do with our intellect as we looked at God's people and how they received God's law. It had to do with the attention and the respect that we give God's word and God's revelation to us. And then as we move down in the chapter, we looked at God has spoken, we must be changed. And this had to do with our emotions, with the emotions that are stirred in us by the Holy Spirit as we're confronted with the Word of God. Confrontation brings contrition. Remember, and that's why God's people were weeping. Well, today, today as we look at the second half of Nehemiah 8, we're talking about our wills. We're talking about actions. Actions that flow from all that we have heard before. So let's look at this scene, and I want you to notice just a few things this morning under this heading. As we pick up where we left off, as we pick up in verse 13, as I said, we're now in the following day. Families who had so long listened to the Word have now, they've gone home. They have celebrated richly, remember, with food and wine. They have celebrated what God has done. In spite of their guilt, they were reminded that the joy of the Lord is their strength. And now here on the morning after... Some have returned. Some are back to study more. It's as if four to five hours of God's Word wasn't enough. Oh yes, this is every pastor's dream. Four to five hours is not enough. They want more. And I want you to notice who it is. Who it is that comes back. It's not everybody that comes back. It's the men. The men come back. See, more than financial wizards and bountiful breadwinners, we need, God wants men of the book. Men of the book. Men who are eager to lead their families and what they have learned concerning who God is and what God has done for them. Yes, the priests and the scribes are there. Those who did the study thing full time. They're there. But so are the ordinary men, the heads of households in Israel. And they came back and they asked, they asked these questions. What, what does this mean? How, how does this apply to us? How does this apply to my family? What, what are we supposed to do? They came back with humble hearts, ready to learn, eager to learn. 
So our first response is for you men. It's for you men this morning that you need to be men of the word. Men of the book. Men who are committed to their families in a way more than just bringing home a paycheck. But men who assume their greatest responsibility in life. Your greatest responsibility in life. Pointing your family to the one true God. Now this is not, this is not the point of this passage. But I think it is a, a pointed application of the passage this morning. And one that I simply want us to notice. It's not to say that we don't need women who are hungry for the Word. We do. We do. But, but it must begin with the men. And so take note of that this morning. But continuing back in our story, what they discovered as they came back here on the second day of the seventh month, what these men discovered was that in less than two weeks... There is a festival. There is a feast that God had prescribed for His people long ago. And they had no idea. It was a feast called the Feast of Booze. It's also called the Feast of Ingathering. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles. See, it was a feast that was given years and years earlier, and it was this eight-day celebration of the people of God that reminded them where they were, where they had been, where God had brought them as a people. I want you to turn with me briefly to Leviticus chapter 3, and let's just look at what God says. Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 23, starting at verse 39. Here God gives this requirement. This was maybe exactly what these men heard on the second day, was these words. Leviticus 23, 29, or excuse me, 39 says, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever. Throughout your generations, you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booze. For seven days, all native Israelites shall dwell in booze, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booze when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now just imagine, it has been generations upon generations since they have heard this command. And now they're hearing what is required for them to do, and there is no hesitation. They simply respond to what God has said to them. And they go out and they begin gathering these branches. They begin gathering these leafy limbs in order to build themselves these little shanties, these little temporary structures in Jerusalem and around the countryside. 
Okay, kids, if you, do you hear what I'm saying here in terms of what God's people are being required to do? I mean, if you're a kid, you're thinking, this is cool. This is fun. You mean that I'm going out with dad and mom and we're going to collect branches and sticks and we're going to make a tent and, and I'm not just going to play in it, but we're going to live in it as a family? If you, go, if you go to my house today, you will see in my backyard a tent. It's not a tent made out of sticks, but it's one of our camping tents. And it, it appeared in our backyard last week. Because one of our kids, I don't know which, I think, I don't know who, Abigail, wanted to play in it. And so it's there. And they played in it. Of course, for kids, this is great. They think, man, how fun. But if you're an adult, if you're a dad or, your mo- or a mom, you're thinking, I'm not so sure about this. I'm not so sure about this. And they remember how when they were building the wall, how they were ridiculed by the surrounding people, by the traitors who came into Jerusalem, how they were just berated over what they were doing. And now these people are going to see them collecting sticks and making little booze. What will the neighbors think? What are they going to say? And God's people didn't care. They didn't care. They understood what God required. They changed their behavior. They changed their ways. They changed their practices. They changed their traditions. Whatever needed to be changed was done. See, God's Word called them to immediate and radical obedience, and by the power of God working in them, they obeyed. They responded. And they did so joyfully. And we are called to do the same. Now, I know many of you, I know some of you are sitting and you're saying, of course I know, and I, I believe that God has spoken to me in His Word, and I know that I need to obey that Word. But let me ask you this question. When was the last time that, that God's Word distinctly changed something in your life? A pattern in your life. God's Word is not saying, and we'll get to this in a little bit, God's Word is not saying that you need to celebrate the Feast of Booze this week. But I want you to just think, I want you to pinpoint the last radical restructuring in your life as a result of God's Word. I hope there's lots of them. That's a question to talk about in community groups. How God's Word has changed us. I read a paragraph this week from Donald Whitney, who's a professor, seminary professor back east, and he, he wrote a, a really a piercing paragraph. He says this, Many professing Christians bump along from Sunday to Sunday, year to year, with no recollection of changes in beliefs or practices as a result of new discoveries in the Word. They would tell you they believe the same as they did years ago. They carry a Bible to church, but they couldn't tell you the last time that their daily life was altered by it. They may even be daily Bible readers, and they have heard one or more sermons per week for years. Yet with all their exposure to the Bible, generally, its inspired words leave no more imprint upon their minds than spoken words upon the air. 
It could never be said of them that they deliberately governed their daily lives by God's word. So it's a, it's a challenge for us. And it's a challenge particularly for us Reformed folk, for us Reformed Presbyterian, because sometimes we, oh, we're such good sermon connoisseurs. And we're good sermon critics. But sometimes we're not so good at letting the words that are spoken in those sermons digest and conform our lives to the compassion and the manner of Christ Jesus. God has spoken. We must respond. And of course it begins with our worship. That's where it hit God's people first in their worship and how they came to the Lord and how they worshiped the Lord. But then it emanated out to all areas of their lives. The people of Israel, no doubt, were an oddity in their booze, in their little shanties around town. How crazy are we prepared to get in responding to God's Word? How willing are we to reorder our lives, to upend our traditions if God's Word demands it? You see, I think about God's people with these makeshift tents, and, and I think about all the raised eyebrows that they got, and what an opportunity for witness this would have been. No doubt some would have jeered, and some would have just talked, but some would have been, what, what kind of God do you worship? What is this for? Why did He ask you to do this? Wow, you are really committed, aren't you? And I can't help but think that Our lives ought to be the same. That our lives ought to be so characterized by radical obedience that as 1 Peter says, people are asking, what is that hope? Why are you doing that? Why are you loving in that way? I can't be the Holy Spirit for you this morning, but I pray that He shows you that He helps you this morning as you think about responding to God's Word. As you recognize that God's Word is so much more than information, it's for transformation. Oh, but I dare not leave you there this morning. There's another truth that I want you to think about this morning with me. Not just that God has spoken and we must respond, but This, God has spoken, this is for your joy. God has spoken, this is for your joy. As you parents know, it's one thing for our children to obey. It's another thing for them to obey joyfully. And yet, as you know, if if our authority is being exercised in their lives the reason we are exercising that authority is for their joy. That's what we want for our kids. Is their joy. And that's exactly what God's people are doing here. In verse 17 it says that there is great rejoicing. They are responding with joy. Now don't forget where they've been. Just a day earlier, less than 24 hours, they were weeping. They were broken. 
But they had been reminded that the joy of the Lord was their strength, is their strength. And here in the Feast of Booths, God is reminding them that in His grace, He's giving them something tangible, something visible for them to remember. To remember that grace. I want to look just real briefly at what this feast was for. Just two things I think that this feast really communicated as the little shanties went up. Number one, it was a reminder of God's past provision and future certainty. See, setting up these booze in this very visible, vivid way for these families was a reminder that God had provided and God will provide. These people were far removed from their ancestors in the wilderness. And yet here they are visually, they are reenacting the salvation that their ancestors received. God had provided. God had preserved. And not just that, even though God's people now live in a semi-secure city, a safe city with walls that have gone up, they hadn't for many years. And ultimately, the city wasn't complete. It still wasn't home. It wasn't their ultimate home. And so as they huddled in these booths, they were reminded with these thin walls, this breakable ceiling, they were reminded of the frailty of life. Not just in the fact that God had provided, but God will provide a future home, a secure home, one that doesn't have the frailty of this booth that you now huddle in. Wrapped up with these things about provision was the year's harvest, because that was one of the aspects of the Feast of Booze, was a celebration of the harvest. In Deuteronomy 16, where the law is reiterated for God's people after Leviticus, there it says in Deuteronomy 16.13, You shall keep the Feast of Booze seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your winepress. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, and it goes on and on. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. So the Feast of Booze was this visual reenactment, this reminder of God's provision, both past and His future provision of a secure home. But secondly, and maybe more importantly, the Feast of Booze was again a reminder of sin. It was a reminder of sin. And I can't say it any more clearly than this. The Feast of Booze was a bloody affair. It was a bloody week. See, within Israel's sacrificial system, God had commanded numerous offerings to be given as the people lived in these booths. They needed to atone for sin. And so Numbers 29, you can look at it another time, but Numbers 29 outlines all the offerings for the week. 
Two rams, 14 lambs every day. 13 bulls on the first day. One less bull each day after that. One bull, one ram, and seven lambs on the last day. A total of 191 animals in all. That was the Feast of Booze. That was the Feast of Tabernacles. That was the week that these people were joyful. How could this be? Well, because God had provided. Yes, they looked to the shanties and they remember the wilderness and they remember God's provision, but they looked, they smelled the sacrifices. And they were reminded that God had provided not just rescue from slavery, not just manna in the wilderness, not just water from the rock, but forgiveness through the blood of the innocent. And so how could there not be joy for them in conforming to such a radical, life-altering command? When obedience to that command just reminds them of the joy and the forgiveness that they have received. And so what about us? We now are the people of God. Is the celebration of booze for us? No. No, the celebration of booze is not for us because we have something greater. We have something that the booze and the tabernacles just foreshadowed. In the coming of Jesus, Colossians 2 speaks to this, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink in regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And therefore we rejoice and we are filled with joy this morning because God has provided God has provided all the same things that He provided for His people then. But He's provided it in Jesus. God's provision, His shelter, His covering, His rescue, His bread for life, His water for life, His forgiveness through the innocent comes in Jesus. It comes in the slain of Jesus. Hebrews 10 extols this Jesus. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are offered every year make perfect those who draw near. It's impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. When Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do Your will, as it is written of Me in the scroll. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Brothers and sisters, God calls you this morning, yes, to wrestle to wrestle in your response to His Word. But you must know that He speaks into your life for your joy. 
Joy that's only found in Jesus. I began with J.I. Packer in that book, Truth and Power. I'll end with a quote from him. He says, when we affirm the authority of the Bible, we are claiming, we are acknowledging that Scripture sets before us the factual and moral nature of things. God's law corresponds to created human nature so that in fulfilling His requirements, we fulfill ourselves. The Gospel of Christ answers to actual human need as a glove fits a hand so that all our responses to God work for our good. And so I remind you this morning that in sending His Son, God has done for us what we could never ever do for ourselves. He set us free. Yes, freedom from the punishment of our failures. And He set us free to live for Him. To walk in accordance of His Word. And to do that with joy in our hearts, knowing that we are loved. That we are accepted. And we want to now respond. So as we go from this place, I pray that God would give us the grace to respond to His Word with joy. Because God has spoken and God has done it all through Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your word to us. We thank you for the reminder that your word is sweet, that it's not burdensome. It would be burdensome. It would be heavy. It would be unbearable if we needed to fulfill that Word in order to come to You. But oh, how we rejoice that Jesus has done it all for us. and That in hiding ourselves in Him, there's new life. There's new joy. There's new hope. There's new strength for obedience. Father, there may be those here this morning who have never come to the Lord Jesus. Those who trying to gain Your favor on their own. Father, by Your Spirit, speak to them, telling them that they'll never be good enough. And they don't need to be good enough. They simply need to look to the Son to look to the suffering symbol that You have provided for Your people. Father, as we turn our hearts and our affections to the visual reminder that You've given us of that sacrifice, Father, may You meet us here and may You go before us as we go from this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.